You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mark Spitz believed he had successfully banished thoughts of the future. He wasn't like the rest of them, the other sweepers, the soldiers up the island, or those haggard clans in the camps and caves, all the far-flung remnants behind their barricades, wherever people struggled and waited for victory or oblivion. The faint residue of humanity stuck to the sides of the world. You never heard Mark Spitz say, when this is all over, or when things get back to normal, or other sentiments of that brand, because he refused them. When it was all done, truly and finally done, you could talk about what you were going to do, see if your house still stood, enjoy a few rounds of how many neighbors made it through, figure out how much of your life from before still remained, and how much you had lost. This is what he had learned. If you weren't concentrating on how to survive the next five minutes, you wouldn't survive them. The recent reversals in the campaign had not swayed him to optimism, nor the t-shirts and buttons and the latest hope delivery system sent down from Buffalo. He scolded himself for succumbing to a reverie, no matter how brief. All that feeny bullcrap had clouded his mind. The tranquility of 135 Duane Street, however, and a vision of what might be made him slip. Colson Whitehead is the author of the novels The Intuitionist, John Henry Days, Apex Hides the Hurt, and Sag Harbor, as well as a collection of essays, The Colossus of New York. His new novel is Zone One. Thank you for joining me. Colson, this is such a wonderful novel. Thank you for finally writing a science no, fiction sure. novel. <laughs> I think I was here for Apex Hides the Hurt in this very building, and you said, you should do a science fiction novel. I mean, I was talking about stuff I liked when I was a kid, and I was like, yeah, I guess, I don't know if I have an idea. So I finally, um, you know, decided to go back and mine all that stuff I loved uh, when I was in elementary school and get a novel out of it. Well, tell us a little bit about um, your decision to write a zombie novel. This is uh, uh, an interesting decision for a, a gentleman of great literary persuasions and talents and acumen. Yeah, it doesn't seem that, you know, strange to me. I mean, I knew there would be resistance from some people, my friends, but I, I had to do it. I... You know, grew up basically a shut-in. I never left a house, and I was just read comic books all day, late 70s Marvels, and watched the afternoon creature feature, rented, you know, stacks of Betamax every Friday. My brother and I would watch Splatter movies and Dario Argento. And it was that stuff that made me want to write. Not necessarily Splatter films, but writing Spider-Man or the X-Men, something in the vein of Stephen King. That's what made me want to write. I had written you know, a few books, and it seemed time to just pay homage to all that stuff that I loved when I was a kid. Well, one of the things I think about zombie novels that, that is so interesting is the kind of uh, democracy <laughs> that, that they imply because, I mean, as, Clyde Barker has a great quote about, you know, here, here are your neighbors knocking at your door, but they, you know, they would like to eat your face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, that's the terror of the zombie apocalypse. I have a very paranoid and misanthropic orientation to people. So when I saw Dawn of the Dead uh, in junior high, 
it seemed to me that the movie was saying that at any moment, your family, your friends, your teacher, your son, brother, could turn to the monsters that you've always sort of suspected they were. Everyone's pretending that they're civilized, but they actually are out to get you and eat you and devour you. It was, it was that sort of diagnosis of, of the zombie trend made me write Zone 1. With Zone 1, you really create an interesting vision of the future and, and of, of the apocalypse. And also, you tell this through the perceptions of a really great character, Mark Spitz. So what I want to know was, what came first, Mark Spitz or the apocalypse? The apocalypse came, came first, and it's definitely inspired by the first Romero trilogy, but also all those great late 60s to early 80s post-apocalyptic films, where there's Planet of the Apes, uh, Omega Man, Escape from New York, uh, even The Warriors, which isn't post-apocalyptic, except that it takes place in a bombed-out imaginary New York where there are no poli- <laughs> very few police and gangs run around in, in theme costumes. Did you see, ever see Damnation Alley? Oh, yeah, I saw it in the theater. Um, <laughs> if you go on YouTube, there's actually a clip of Paul Winfield being eaten by the armor-plated cockroaches. And, they, and as a kid, that totally scared me. Now it's like the worst, they have the worst special effects I've ever seen. <laughs> so so th- those movies are in there. And, you know, I, when I saw Dawn of the Dead, I was like, you know, 12. It was, like a, it was a family outing. We were a, a horror-loving family. So we had dinner, my, you know, my parents and my brother and I. And then we saw Dawn of the Dead. And I was, you know, it was too, it was R-rated, so I shouldn't, it was X-rated. So I definitely should not have been in there. But it was... New York in the 80s, and and pretty soon after that, I started having zombie anxiety dreams. Really? Yes. Well, some people have dreams about being late for an you know exam in a class they know they took, or um, there's a big presentation or unprepared. I've had zombie dreams, and depending on what is going on in my life, what I'm stressed about, I escape, or they get me, or they're fast, they're slow. I'm alone. I'm with a group. So that's been like yeah, my my psychological damage for the last 30 years. But um, just as an aside, now that I'm reading from the book in public, there's always like one or two people at every reading who come up to me and say, you know, I have zombie dreams too. (laughs) So there's a lot of us out there. And then finally, about two years ago, I guess I was going through a new stage in life. My father had passed away a few months before I was married, and it seemed like the marriage was not going to last very long. And I was out in Long Island. I had house guests. And I woke up, and I heard them laughing and playing downstairs. And all I could think of was, because I was in this, you know, uh, state, can you guys leave? You know, I just want to be alone. I can't really deal with house guests. Uh, You guys are lovely. I love you very much. But uh, you got to go. So, of course, you can't say that. So I just (laughs) hid in my bedroom and went back to sleep. And I had a dream, and the dream was... I was in an apartment in New York, and I wanted to go into the living room, but I kept having this thought, you know, have they swept the zombies out of the living room yet? And then I woke up, and I thought, well, that's like a, a weird job, like elevator inspection. Like, you don't think about it, but in the apocalypse, somebody's going to have to do the grunt work of getting, you know, the remaining monsters out so people can resettle. And then I started working on the, the book that day. So I didn't have the character yet. I mean... The first, the, the final scene came that first day, so I was writing towards that. There were conventions of the zombie movie the, and the post-apocalyptic movie, so I wanted to embrace some, reject others. Uh, the zombies are slow. That's just the way I, I, I see them. That's how they scare. That's how they've always 
reached me and scared me. I think the mob with the slow moving is even scarier than uh, being chased by fast moving zombies. I, pretty early, I think I, I was going to set it in New York. I hadn't set a novel in New York before. So the logistics, how do you go around sweeping? And it seemed like you make a wall and you sweep one area, and then you go to the next one. So Zone 1, the title, it refers to downtown Manhattan, everything below Canal, where they put up this big cement wall. And Mark Spitz, the main character, eventually I you know, came up with him. He and his team are going from restaurants to diners to office buildings, clearing out what the army hasn't killed. And that's so basically 1% of the monsters in the city. It strikes me when you said that you are uh, thinking about this a couple of years ago, that um, I was probably back in, I remember very clearly the day when uh, Shearson Brothers was closed down. And I was at uh, the radio station and I told the, one of the fellows I worked with, I said, this is the apocalypse. Remember this day, the end of the world has happened, nobody noticed. And I think that in a sense that this preoccupation we have with uh, the apocalypse is because we do feel, in a sense, it has happened with the financial breakdown. Everything keeps going pretty much the same. We're just kind of like waiting for the whole thing to, to completely, uh -huh. the, the, the wall to drop down. And there's even an infection metaphor in that we now are told that Greece is likely to, if Greece goes down, it's going to bring down everything else in a big chain reaction. And they actually said it would infect the United States eventually. Right. Yeah, the contagion. I mean, I think growing up in the 70s, I'm you know, in, in New York City, I'm aware that the city can go back to that kind of barbaric, ruined uh, catastrophe of a place at any time. And, and I think that drives, you know, it helps I mean, envision the apocalypse in the city now because that childhood New York, New York is always sort of superimposing itself over the cleaned-up New York now. Um, oh, really? What an interesting thought. Did you have to do duck and cover? No, I mean, that was like nuclear uh, war okay. stuff. Basically, if you grew up in, in New York, you're ground zero, so there's no point. You know, you're, you're going to get it. There are definitely economic cycles, and if New York can take that kind of hit it took in the 70s, it can take it again. So uh, I was very aware of that when I was writing the book. Uh, talk about... Um, creating the character of Mark Spitz because I, I I just love this guy he, he he excels at the mandatory I think that's a, not exactly the phrase you use but yeah a strange yeah a strange, strange facility, facility for, for the, the mandatory, mandatory. Yeah. he um well uh, it occurred to me that if you're really high functioning you know one of the country's best when the apocalypse comes or a zombie apocalypse you would just kill yourself you jump off a building because there's no you know the rule is definitely over and there's no place for you. So if you understand what's going on, you would, you know, take that route. If you're, like, low-functioning, you're, like, a D or F personality, you'd probably get mowed down pretty quickly because you're not adapted to this new place. And so that leaves, you know, the Bs, the, the people who muddle through, the mediocre. They've been just sort of skating their whole lives. So why, why not the, the end times? And, that, and I think that would be the population of the world, like, when the world, you know, when things end, all that will be left are these sort of human cockroaches, those who just sort of just made it by their whole lives. And Mark, Slips, Mark Spitz is one of these exceptionally unexceptional people. As you're talking, I'm laughing. I find this all tremendously funny. <laughs> and I think that's one of the great aspects of this book is that 
it's written in this wonderful, lovely prose. There's hundreds of great sentences we'll talk about. Um, but it's really funny. It's very dark in a way. I mean, the world has ended. You know, things are never going to come back. And, and yet you find a lot of humor in that, and it's kind of subtle. Coming off a book like Sag Harbor, it had a lot of broad humor, and you know, setting up jokes for hundreds of pages. There are comic set pieces. I just assumed from the beginning that if I was dealing with the end of the world, it'd be really depressing, and I think I wanted to bum people out. But then the jokes started creeping in, you know, some of the dark humor about Reconstruction. They've retrieved from the wasteland a, a songwriter, and he's made an, uh, the anthem of Reconstruction, you know, stop, can you hear the eagle roar? So people hum this as they kill zombies, and it just seemed like that kind of, those dark jokes started creeping in, and I had to accept that that was going to be part of the book, even though... 95% of the population is gone, and it is depressing. Um, the reader, if not the characters, you know, can have a chuckle here and there. It's very entertaining. I think you, you and one of the things that I really enjoy about this book, um, in terms of the humor, is the way you kind of set up the world and the way we explore the world. So talk about um, creating you know, the plot structure for this, uh, how you, you know, decided to plot this. You wrote the end first, so you, you had a goal in mind when you, you had to go back. And how far did you go back? Um, well, I didn't write the end, but I knew what the ending was, and mm -hmm. I was sort of writing towards it. And the last line, I think I wrote the first day. So, you know, I mean, do you want to pay tribute to the genre? you want to expand the form, you know, throw in your, your new variations? So... Um, Did you read a, a, a bunch of the books? I actually have a, in my collection somewhere a, a original mass market paperback of Night of the Living Dead, complete with the cigarette advertisement. Okay, all right, cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I've read World War Z a couple years ago and like it, mm -hmm. uh, the comic of The Walking Dead. So, I mean, I've read those before I started. But for me, it, it is a, a film genre that I'm, you know, mm -hmm. that's inspiring a book. So the first... Living Dead trilogy, uh, movies like The Road Warrior and Mad Max. But, I mean, basically I watch those twice a year anyway, so it's not like um, it was a big stretch to research them. I said now I could write them off of my taxes that I was buying, you know, the DVDs version of them. I had to think about, like, I mean, it was a no-brainer that they'd be slow zombies. But I also wanted to invent stuff, so there's the stragglers. Well, the, talk about the division because that's a really great in, that's a great innovation uh, between the skulls and the stragglers. The skulls, you know, for their skeletal appearance, are the normal zombies that we know from pop culture. And then there's the stragglers, and the stragglers are human statues devoted to the dead world, who these people used to be. Instead of being the ravenous dead, once they get infected and their brains start malfunctioning, they go to places that were important to them, emotionally charged places from their past. And once they get there, they stand there and never move again. They're waiting for the world to restart or, or something. So if you're a bus driver, you might, once your brain goes, you might go head down to the depot, get into your favorite M61, and then sit and wait for passengers who are never coming, who are, of course, dead. And so for me, you know, the straggler is, it allows me to talk about nostalgia. Who are we? What remains after the devastation? Because the survivors are also neurotically attached to their past. I mean, they're obsessed with bringing good and bad parts of the dead world into this new place, uh, Reconstruction. And they're as just obsessed with who they used to be. They're not the same people. The world has changed. 
and I, I think having the straggler type figures who are basically kind of ghosts sort of haunting themselves allows me to erase the image between the living and the dead, the uninfected and the infected, and see where they overlap, which is plenty of places. You know, what's interesting about the, the stragglers, too, is that they're both a, a source of humor. It's kind of funny. There's a guy who's hovering over the um, photocopier, but there's also, uh, you know, a real sense of poignancy there. And I think you do a good job of um, infusing this novel with the right le uh, level of poignancy and uh, wistfulness for what once was. Well, I mean, I've written about a certain idea of New York and, you know, the Colossus of New York, the way you're, you're superimposing, you know, your past streets and stores over the new stores. And writing this book allowed me to explore some of those ideas a little further through Mark Spitz and his damaged uh, psychology. Yeah, it's about zombies, or it has a lot of zombies in it. But for me, it's about just being a survivor. You mm -hmm. know, there are, are big catastrophes we, we managed to live through. There are more personal ones. And that's how do you just drag yourself from the before and into the after, this new world where you, you found yourself. Having realistic characters that you can emotionally connect to as they sort of grapple with their loss, giving you points of, hopefully, points of identification with the humans and the stragglers, um, and even, you know, the dead sometimes, you know, I think keeps the book in line with other things I've done, you know, their recurring themes, mm -hmm. and just because they're you know, flesh-eating revenants running through, the, running through it, uh, it's still, you know, I, I still see a lot of my preoccupations there. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's very much a Colson Whitehead book. And I think it's interesting for, if, for those of us who have read The Colossus of New York to see what you do with the, using the genre tropes to give yourself a, a, a nice, a, to, an imaginative vision of New York. Because we know you love New York, and so it's nice to see you visit there in a manner that allows you to kind of get beyond the real. Yeah, I mean... You know, some of my ideas about the city are definitely in there. I mean, I, I, like, the, I love the first snow of the year. Like, it happens at midnight, maybe you're coming home, and everyone's indoors, and you're the first person to step through the centimeter of snow. There are no cars. Like, that's zone one. That is the desolate, emptied-out city that's yours. You're the only survivor. And for a block or three blocks the world has ended and you're the last person. And instead of walking through ash like Mark Spitz does, you're walking through snow. Um, Wall Street, uh, that's in zone one in the book, after nine o'clock is a complete wasteland. No one lives there. Corporate towers are shut down. And if you find yourself down there, you are like Mark Spitz, part of this, you know, the lone survivor of, of, of the apocalypse. And that's a real sort of feeling about the city that I carry around. And, and also, too, like Mark Spitz, if you're down there, you're, you're likely to be somebody doing a lowly job in the trail of, of you know, vanished greatness. Yeah, I mean, the... Uh, I used to be a guy who cleaned out banks as a janitor. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, they're getting rid, of, getting rid of some of the remaining rabid dead. They're getting rid of the stragglers, which is just, you know, doesn't pose any problem because they're... Uh, innocuous and don't attack you. They just stand still. And they're clearing out, you know, dead bodies, dead pets, you know, I mean, and trying to think of realistically who's left behind. And it's, you know, little Muffy, the Cocker Spaniel. There are various, like, family, you know, grandma who we couldn't take with us. She's 
in her condo in the back room and has to be cleaned out. Yeah, it's, it's grunt work. You also have an interesting vision of civilization whenever you deal with a, a write a novel that posits the fall of civilization. You're talking about exactly what's gone. And in a sense, this is a, a really fascinating novel of absence. They've wiped everything clean, clean the slate of society, but, as, but once they get back together in groups, all the bad stuff comes back pretty quickly. And so if there's authority, there's bureaucracy, you know, have you filled out the right form to register that uh, you're getting extra peas for this, for this camp? Corporate sponsorship comes back fairly quickly. Some chairman of the board realizes that people are just stealing Nikes from all over the country. So how can we maybe get tax breaks for all these Nikes that are being stolen and used for reconstruction? For me, you know, the bad stuff comes back quickly. And then in terms of the characters like Gary and Caitlin, who, are, who work with Mark Spitz, they're pretty much the same. Everyone they know is dead, but they're still trapped in this pre-apocalyptic personality modes. So Caitlin is a grade grubber. She was a grade grubber before the apocalypse. She is again now. Gary was sort of annoying, an annoying misfit. He's still an annoying misfit. The only real difference is that 95% of the population is dead, and they're left behind. There's a great scene where where, uh, Caitlin talks about uh, uh, being elected secretary in junior high school. (laughs) Yeah, the student council. And then... And Mark Spitz is thinking, no one has mentioned that, you know, this is probably the first person to mention being secretary of the student council since the world ended. And if that, you know, if, as long as Caitlin's here, then that world exists. As long as Gary's, you know, thinking of his dead brothers, they're still around. And so they, they really are these, you know, sort of walking museums of the past. And, and also, too, bureaucracy is always one of the themes of, of your books. And... and your your take here is so perfect because the first thing that arises out of civilization, you say, is bureaucracy. And bureaucratic mistakes. They figured out how to clear out Manhattan, and they clear out Zone 1, and they're wondering why there's so many zombies walking around above the Zone 1, and they realize they forgot to close George Washington Bridge. And so, like, all the New Jersey zombies are still spilling into the city like they do every weekend, you know, for Broadway shows. So that incompetence was, it was very important to make sure that that, that, that was in the book and coming back early. <laughs> One of the things that I think you do really well in this book is the prose is really amazing. There's so many great sentences and so much um, really thought-provoking work. Uh, does this flow off the tip of your pen when you're first penning your apocalypse, or do you just start with the face-eating and does the, the, do the great sentences come after? You know, the sentences are, are, are always hard. I mean, I think I can do outlines. I can, you know, plan the world before I start, you know, the beginning and the end. But that first 70 pages, 100 pages is when you're figuring out what the narrator sounds like. Is it a third person? How close is the the narrator to the main character? That always takes a long time. Once you figure that out, you still have to make many, many months to get the sentences into the right shape. So for me, the the book clicked uh, when they go to Atlantic City. Mm -hmm. Mark Spitz's Last Night in the Wild before the world comes crashing down is a trip to Atlantic City. And it was described in the casino that I, that I sort of finally understood like what the narrator sounded like and what kind of sentences these guys were going to be enmeshed by and encased in. So, but yeah, but it takes, you know, there's a lot of revision that, <laughs> that goes on. 
you know, one of the things that I love about this is that that makes the world seem so real and palpable to us is the language that arises, post-apocalyptic language. Um, there's a whole, you know, new kind of language and, and kind of conventions and, and the, you know, a powerful convention that you talk about is the recitation of the last night. And, and Mark has three versions of his last night. There's the, the slang and some of it's organic and some of it's manufactured by Buffalo where the provisional government is based. You have to rebrand the end of the world and their survivors. And so there are the American Phoenix or Phoenix, which is, I mentioned in that, in that reading. And then, you know, one of the rituals in those early days of people coming together is sharing their story of last night, you know, capital L, capital N, uh, the night when um, everything went to hell and, you know, you lose your loved ones, everything you know has disappeared. And so you meet someone out in the wasteland and maybe you trade a can of peas for a tin of jam and then you get to sharing your last night stories. And, and depending on the connection you feel with the other person it's they're very short they're abbreviated and then sometimes it's the you know the full monty of everything you lost in that night and you're with someone who you trust in the uh, walk-in freezer of the greek restaurant or the abandoned gas station and you're gonna be in there for a while and so you get down to sharing you know the story of how you came to be there uh, as you were writing this i mean this it's not really a, I can't say, it's interesting to me because even though the events portrayed are depressing and what happens, uh, you know, in, to the world is depressing, it's not, a, I wouldn't say this is a depressing novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, depending on people's inter interpretation of the last scene, mm -hmm. it's hopeful or not hopeful. I think it's sort of inevitable that the book has to end in the way it does. But you have to have, you know, in a, an apocalypse story, you have to have some sort of hope, no matter how slim. Yet, like if you get a radio signal from you know, a thousand miles away that's only on for five minutes, and it says, you know, come to Buffalo, come to Vancouver, there are people here. You have to believe that it's not just a recording; there are actually humans there, and, it, and the settlement hasn't been overrun. The island off of the off the coast where survivors are gathering. So you have to believe, you know, one that there's a place where you can be safe, or else, you know, why keep keep going and you have to be able to recreate that sort of the sort of relationships that you lost on last night when the world ended you know can you make a family again and you know Mark Spitz does find a sort of family in Gary and Caitlin and the lieutenant their sort of grizzled army liaison but you have to have something you're you're fighting for or else you just lay down and you know become a straggler or one of the things I think that's interesting in the reading that you you talk about this, um, the the perception of the future, you know that there there really is no future the, for these people. That's a, that's how how Mark is trying to to nail himself down and ratchet back his expectations. And I think that's an interesting perception. Yeah, I mean it's distracting from immediate survival to think that one day you'll be back in your house and in your favorite chair. The end is ongoing, it's not over yet. So Mark Spitz is fighting with himself. Can he believe that they can actually restart society and things will get back to some sort of state of normalcy? Or does he have to remain vig vigilant like he has for the last two years? He survived by not believing uh, that he's ever safe, that he's ever past danger. So letting go of those combat subroutines in his brain is very difficult. 
Well, two, if the society in which you've spent all of your life dies, and yet you are still alive, <clears throat> the difference between you, you are in a sense the living dead, and the difference between you and the face-eating zombies is maybe just a, a you know, it's a matter of philosophy. Yeah, or technicality. I mean, yeah. having the straggler figures and the survivors, I'm examining the dead parts of the living and then the living parts of the dead. What kind of person, what kind of personality did Mark Spitz have before the collapse? He was trapped in routines, repetitive behaviors. How alive was he? What kind of joy did he, you know, make for himself in the world? So hopefully that line is, um, you know, being erased at, between those infected and uninfected as the novel progresses. You, you know, too, you do a great job of examining, you know, the, the psychology, the actual, the, you know, perceptive psychology. We see things through Mark's eyes. But also you talk about, you know, the prescriptive psychology and, and you create post-apocalyptic stress disorder, which is sure. really a lot of fun. But, of course, it rings absolutely true. Everyone's been diagnosed by the remaining shrinks, with post-apocalyptic stress disorder. And then, of course, the symptoms are insomnia, uh, sleeping too much, eating too much, eating too little, irritability, migraines. So basically, it's a case of the Mondays. Everyone, every sort of thing that makes you feel bad on Monday morning is also a feature of the end of the world. So, and everyone has like their symptoms that they're dealing with. The, the apocalypse is an endless Monday morning? Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you fall asleep, and it's Monday again when you wake when you wake up. Uh, that's uh, that's even that's the scariest version of the apocalypse I think I've sure. ever heard. <laughs> One of the features of uh, zombie novels and zombie movies, of course, is just bucket loads of mind-boggling gore. I mean, uh, the Dawn of the Dead uh, and uh, Day of the Dead were noted for just having stuff that well they were x-rated and i remember when i was a kid um reading in reader's digest robert ebert roger ebert's re uh, review of night <laughs> of the living dead i don't know if have you ever read it no no oh he, it's as far as he was concerned night of the living dead was the fall of civilization we didn't need the zombies the movie was just fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, I, I remember remember reading you know about tom savini's work special effects i you know i bought fangoria uh, magazine, which is you know devoted to horror uh, movies, and you know waiting for the movie to come out so I can see the effects that you know have been broken down in this article. Like here's a here's a thing where he's being ripped in half and still looking at the camera. <laughs> and, uh, so um, yes, they're very gory, and, and and sometimes it was fun you know to bash some heads in, but you want it to be also artful. You know, like you want it, want it to be artfully done. So I think my you know, deadpan sentences, I think, played into muting some of the horror, horrific scenes, but also, I think, maybe turning the volume up also, not to use a you know, very good metaphor, but I think when you describe in a deadpan way something truly horrific, it becomes even more outlandish or outrageous to the brain. Well, it speaks to the emotional deadness of, you know, both the reader and, and the, the character. And that's kind of, that's even scarier when we read this. I mean, what's interesting to me was I was reading this book, and you talk about somebody whose face got gnawed off, and, and, and I kind of read that past that, and I just think, <laughs> wow, that's really horrible, but it didn't bother me. Yeah, you get desensitized. I mean, Mark Spitz and all those people have dispatched hundreds of zombies, and they've seen 
hundreds of people get devoured by zombies. Uh, how do they keep walking around with this, you know, terrible knowledge? So they have put it away, you know, in some part of their, part of their brains so that they can keep functioning. There are plenty of variations on dismemberment and things like that in the book. So, you know, you are going to, you're along for the ride as well. You, you know, as a science fiction novel, too, I think this is really well constructed and, and well wrought and well thought out. You know, it has a very coherent feel. It feels real, feels logical. You put it all together really well. And I'd like you to just talk about, you know, the kind of the hard science fiction aspects of this in terms of making this feel like something realistic and not just a, a horror fantasy. In the end, Mark Spitz is just a guy trying to make it through the day and not get killed, like, like, like all of us. Uh, so how, how do you make him a real character? How do you animate people like Gary and Caitlin um, and make them people you recognize from your own life who might you know, survive the culling and be tasked with re, you know, restarting civilization? So, I mean, as long as you make it about characters and not gore, I had some anxiety about doing it because it, when I started the book, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies was really huge. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like the culture couldn't go more zombie mad than that. And so I assumed, you know, when the book came out two or three years after that, people would be sick of zombies and how do I feel about that? And I just, you know, thought back to when I was writing The Intuitionist, a book about elevator inspectors. This is a ridiculous book. <laughs> you know, I'm like, uh, I'm coming up with, with philosoph- warring philosophies of for elevator inspection. And I feel like an idiot. But... When it's done, it's going to be good. I've built this world, you know, that has consistent rules. And all you can hope that is if you, if you do it really well, people will come, whether they're turned off by the ridiculous premise of a book about elevator inspectors or they're sick of zombies or never even heard of zombies and, you know, have this prejudice against horror. If you just take the time to, you know, really make the world, uh, make the characters compelling and if you can pull it off, then it doesn't matter, are things in or things out? Is it about a whale you know, <laughs> or zombies or elevator inspectors? Uh, you have to trust that if you, know, if you put your heart into it, it'll work out. Well, you know, a, a good novel, as, and, as this is, actually will permanently change your perception in the world. So, I mean, I, next time I go to New York, I'm going to have a very different vision of it, just as every time I step into an elevator, I look up there and see if the damn thing's been Yeah, expected. yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> I, I think if you can see uh, New York the way Mark Spitz sees it, as a, a land of the living dead, and I guess I see it as that way sometimes, you know, in my misanthropic moods, then I'll be very happy. One of the things that I like about this is there's at one point, you, you talk about, uh, Mark, how he has a reserved tank of feeling in the absence of spirituality. And, and I, I really like that, that idea that, because I think that speaks to something that's you know, happening now that you know, is, it's a big deal. I mean, you know, since, since the Enlightenment, really, that you know, how, um, and, and zombies are a great way of manifesting that. Uh, here's death. It's right staring you in the face, and there ain't no angels. There's no white light. God is nowhere to be found. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're you you die, and then your body keeps moving, like in this you know horrible, <laughs> hideous caricature of of actual ex- existence. So, you know, your soul's not going to heaven. 
you know, or if it is, there's some afterlife. It's just, it's, you know, you're watching your body do these horribly atrocious things. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> which cracks me up. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you're not religious, what do you believe in when the end comes? How do you move your feet? What makes you get up instead of just lying down and giving up? So, for Mark Spitz, it's that, you know, the idea that you can get to the final human settlement where you don't need the barriers you've erected, you know, your whole life, where you found people to love again, and and you can start. And it's, maybe it doesn't follow, you know, the holy scriptures. You've made it yourself out of the ruins. And well, also, too, you know, maybe only in a post-apocalyptic zombie-ridden wasteland do you actually find a place where you can feel like you can come home to. <laughs> sort of unfortunate, but yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, well. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's, I think, the, the, the real power of books like this. And I think, you know, the power of the books you write is that um, they give us some perceptions of stuff that's, they allow us to kind of like take the world out of its box, turn it sideways and say, oh, well, this is what New York, you know, it's kind of, a, it's like a snow globe. No, yeah, I mean, and there's little, you know, remains of human beings swirling in ash through the air like yeah. there isn't a snow globe. Yeah. Now, uh, I, as a guy who's used to doing, you know, uh, who's written more literary on the literary fiction side of stuff, did you feel any trepidation entering the genre world? Well, I mean, you know, because I had this, you know, deep love for zombies and their, you know, their horrible world. I knew that I was coming from, I had definite ideas I wanted to explore uh, that I've been sort of mulling over for a while. I think about eight, maybe eight years ago, I, I wanted to write a nonfiction piece about zombies and like my interpretation mm-hmm. going back to you know, Richard Matheson and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which to me is a, a zombie film. Mm-hmm. You know, that has well, that that's same. interesting. You know, you're right. I never thought about that. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, you, you fall asleep and your husband, your wife has... You become a monster who wants to d- destroy you, and your whole town, one by one, is transformed. So it's it's not so much the flesh eating for me; it's the your kinship group, your whole community becoming these these monsters, and being on alone and on the run. You know, I, I think you know the first invasion of the body snatchers, and then the remake in the in the seventies drove that home for me. So, uh, so my idea of zombie is not about Haiti and people who have been you know are doing the bidding of the puppet master. It's not about fast zombies, although you know fast zombies are scary and have their place. Mm-hmm. It's about the mob. It's about uh, the people you love disentangling from your family unit and becoming part of this monster horde. Having done one piece of genre fiction, are you going to grace us with another? I- I'm oh, hoping so. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you know, you asked, you asked about trepidation I sort of talking about zombies. I mean, I um, you know, we'll see. I have no idea what I'm going to do next. You know, I was pretty exhausted writing this book. I, usually I, I, you know, share work in progress. You know, I'll read from it or, you know, give it to my agent or something, the first 100 pages. But this I wrote, you know, beginning to end without showing anybody. So I was sort of trapped in, in, this, in this world. That's more probably, I think that probably what lends it some of its urgency and its, uh, hermetic feel. I mean, it feels like a real, you get in there and you can't get out. And I think that's 
an, an essential part of these kind of novels to trap the reader in that world. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't on purpose. I wasn't like method writing or anything. <laughs> you know, um, I think I just felt, I mean, partially, you know, tell people you're writing a zombie novel and they're like, oh, that's a low cultural form. And it's not until it's done where you can say, this is what I, this is what I mean by zombie novel. And it's not what you were walking around in your head. Really? I um, can, you know, I can't believe that, that uh, um, anybody would assume that anything you would do would be a, a low cultural form. And yet, well, thank you. I mean, also, also what is a low cultural form? Nothing's yeah. low. You like what you like. And yeah, zombies yeah, well. are, you know, highbrow, lowbrow, whatever. It's just how, how you, you know, well, one can, hardly, material. one can hardly forget Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is actually an original zombie novel itself. Someone pointed it out to me recently. I was like, yeah, I guess if you put it that way, it is. Um, and, yeah, and Beloved's about an angry ghost. Sure. I mean, um, a particularly angry ghost. But, I mean, you know, the tradition of literary, so-called literary writers going into genre. I don't know. I probably wouldn't do a, a horror novel, you know, again. I mean, uh, so quickly. I'd do something else. But for the first time with this book and then Sag Harbor, I've had, in the case of Sag Harbor, a character or a voice I wanted to revisit. I'm not sure if I would visit, go back to Benji Cooper, but that kind of like first person uh, humorous voice, mm -hmm. you know, was very appealing. I had a great, a lot of fun with that. And then in this book, um, the world, you know, the devastated world, I'm not sure if I'm done with it yet. There are characters like uh, the Quiet Storm who came in, you mm -hmm. know, fairly late in the conception of the book who didn't get there um and she didn't get her proper page time because it wasn't her book oh that would be great i i'd love to hear her story no she was cool i mean i sort of you know <laughs> I she her. popped up one day i was like oh she's <laughs> you know there's more i can do with her but also i mean even gary and caitlin mm -hmm. and the lieutenant you know some some characters die but they're they have stories before they can be told so so that's new for me i def i never wanted to write a sequel to the intuitionist um but uh this world and then the voice, at least, of Sag Harbor, uh, they've stayed with me, and you know they gave me a lot of pleasure. Well, they gave us a lot of pleasure, too, and I'm sure that uh, we'll be looking forward to your next book. I've been speaking with Colson Whitehead. His new book is Zone One. Thank you for joining me, Colson. Oh, it's a pleasure. Love being on. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.